You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chu's is NPR's critic for All Things Considered. His newest novel is Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, Rick. We have two wonderful books that we're talking about today. Let's start, uh, and you know, I think they have some similarities, although they're at the opposite end of the spectrum. Well, they're both collections, aren't they? Both uh, collections. Uh, the Jim Shepard is a collection of short stories. The Library of America edition uh, of Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut's um, Four novels and, and some stories. Uh, the first Vonnegut to appear in Library of America, I assume it's not the last. Um, it's got Cat's Cradle, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, Slaughterhouse-Five, and Breakfast of Champions, uh, with all the comical drawings included. Uh, yes, and they do, Shepard and Vonnegut do have something in common. Um, actually, it's a line of, of bitter comedy that goes from Mark Twain to Vonnegut to uh, Shepard. I think Shepard is working in that same tradition. And Shepard's stories, though they're all meticulously researched and for the most part set in the real world, still have that same kind of, I think, over-the-top feel in a way that Vonnegut's do as well. Yeah, I mean, there's this one story of Shepard's in this uh, collection, which is called, you think that's bad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's called In Cretaceous Seas, and it's an extraordinary opening um, let me read this page. In Cretaceous Seas, dip your foot in the water, and here's what you're playing with. The factinous, all angry, underbite and knitting needle teeth with heads oddly humped and eyes enraged with accusation and rib-bone bodies so muscular they fracture coral heads when surging through to bust in on insufficiently alert pods of juvenile cladastes who spin around to face an oncoming maw that's in a perpetual state of homicidal resentment. The smaller xyphactinides are three times your length and swallow their prey whole. They're gill to gill with Cretoxyrhina, great white sharks 50 feet long with heads the size of Mini Coopers and 12-inch nightmare triangles of teeth. uh, Mosasaurs, big and small, the runts weighing in at two tons, and the alphas, like Tylosaurus, stupefying 60 feet. Under the surface, they're U-boats with crocodiles' heads. Pliosaurs in their hunting echelons competing to see who's the more viciously ill-tempered. Chronosaurs whose jaws provide the kind of leverage that can snap whale spines. Thalassomedons, the biggest of all the uh, elasmosers. Sorry, the biggest of all the elasmosaurs with 20-foot water snake necks that allow the Venus flytrap teeth to be everywhere at once. Dacosaurs gliding through the murk of fish parts spewed by their initial thrashing attacks and rising out of the blue gloom like the ridged bottom itself easing up to meet you. Lypleurodon, holdover from the Jurassic, the biggest predator that ever lived. Families could live in its skull. On the move, it's like the continental shelf taking a trip. It feeds everywhere, even in shallow water with the surf breaking over it like a sandbar. Its earth-moving front flippers keep it from standing 
uh, excuse me, its earth-moving front flippers keep it from stranding. If some of the biggest land predators stand around the shallows trolling for what floats in, that's their mistake. It takes them off their feet like fruit off a tree. This is the Tethys Ocean, huge, shallow, and warmed by its position, locked between the world's two giant supercontinents. This is the place where the prey could kill a sperm whale. This is all this one guy's bed. This guy, we'll call him Conroy, because that's his fucking name, whose insomnia every night is beyond debilitating, teeming, epic, with hostile energy, oceanic. What's his problem? And then the story goes on to talk about this troubled husband and father. So all of that leads up to suggest the, the, uh, the consciousness of this, uh, this, uh, this man on whom the world is just putting all its weight. So, I mean, it's beyond tour de force. I don't know, you need another name for this kind of opening of a short story about a domestic uh, problem. I think it's a uh, force majeure. <laughs> there you go. You know, what, Tour de force majeure. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting there. You know, um, in one of the things that strikes me about the stories in this book is they really do give you – this is a – a collection of short stories that really gives you the feel of novels in terms of the details and the richness of his research. And I can't help but think of a collection of Stanislaw Lem essays. He wrote a book called A Perfect Vacuum where he um, reviewed a bunch of non-existent books and he began with reviewing his own book which he gave a kind of a mixed review he said well here are all these great reviews of books that this guy has made up but he really just did them instead of writing the novels <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and but i think you know here what's nice is that you get all the full richness of a novel but it just comes at you like a, a tidal wave every time yeah i mean the collection is so rich I, I don't think you can read these stories seriously you've got to Put them, put them away, um, and you know when I when I first started reading Shepard, I thought, I mean, this guy's absolutely brilliant. Is brilliance enough though? But every you know all of the brilliance in these stories, as in that opening I just read, really uh, works toward the uh, presentation of of a practical human problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what makes his work uh, for for all the the research. Um, that's what makes his work really stick. Is that you. Get as after you, you as a, after all this stuff in the midst of all this stuff as a result of all this stuff, you get somebody that you can relate to and actually care about, yeah. and and all that uh, this kind of detail and his historical settings and the science fictionish settings. I love the story about the Japanese special effects guy. Right. <laughs> Uh, uh, all these settings, you know, really can contribute to a nice picture of, for the most part, you know, uh, what what you know what men worry about. <laughs> right, and it's. I mean, some of the situations are monstrous, as in that uh, the first person story set in, uh, in 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 medieval France about the, the monster murderer Gilles de Ray. Oh boy, um, that's a tough read un- unless right. you're ready for it, and I mean, so I but, would. The research is impeccable, mm-hmm. um, and the language, it's, it's, it's odd. The language, he gives you the flavor of the antique language and the intensity of the, of, of the contemporary world at the same time. And, and just everywhere you turn, there's a, a brilliant passage, a brilliant sentence, but all of it at the surface, service of, of the story. 
and, and lots of great stories. A, a really great uh, story of, uh, about a guy who works in, in the, the, you know, the defense department and this kind of, you know, the black, the working on the info war. I think Minotaur, he, yeah, the lead story. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really well, well done. Beautiful stuff. Um, and, and I, I like his, uh, his his way of kind of mixing the research and and using that kind of the 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 prose called for by the research as a different way angle mm-hmm. into yes. a way of externalizing what the characters out. Right. About. I mean, there was what, what the story. Well, a lot of them depend on utter pure utter research, but uh, as in that uh, medieval. France story, but the story Netherlands lives with water about a, a a Dutch hydrologist and his family. I mean that comes out of about half a dozen books, but he makes them makes the story come alive. And uh, and then I mean the language just is, is so vital and mm-hmm. alert. Uh, that story about the uh, Pacific Theater. Mm. Uh, I mean that's one line just leaps out at you. We got moved farther off the trail into denser jungle. Under the canopy, night fell so fast it was like you'd gone blind. Yeah, that's nobody's nobody in the foreseeable future is going to be able to write about sunset <laughs> in the Pacific without keeping that line in mind. Right, that's a story happy with crocodiles. So brilliant, Jim Shepard. It can't go wrong, and uh, but we do recommend readers give themselves a break because these stories are like sprints into other worlds and other uh, times and other minds that are pretty exhausting. In a yeah, way. that's that's a good metaphor. Sprint is right. You, you you use use up all of your readers' energy, and then you have to take a little rest. Right. Now, uh, in between reading those those sprints, you can probably pop right over to. Uh, um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut in this uh, New American uh, Library uh, selection, and it's it's a uh, it's about time. Well, it is about time. <laughs> it's about time. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. It's um, you know I mean I've been rereading Vonnegut for a while now. I reread Slaughterhouse Five on the twenty fifth anniversary, and it holds up absolutely brilliantly. And and uh, some of the other novels in this in this uh, new library of American volume, like Cat's Cradle, uh, it really comes alive in a, in a way that I hadn't seen when I first read it. Mm. Um, Cat's Cradle was always one of my favorites. I, I just always found that its evocation of kind of chaos <laughs> and, and the Rube Goldberg effect of life. I thought was just so brilliant and and compelling and funny and all the things you really want in a novel and, and Vonnegut does well at novel length. I think he <clears throat> keeps you very interested and keep keeps you, uh, um, but has a uh, he has a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's I mean the but the the uh, his method is right out of Twain. I mean, in the opening of Breakfast of Champions, mm-hmm. he gives you this. Drawing of a large number, fourteen ninety-two, mm-hmm. um, and then he says the teachers told the children that this was when their continent was discovered by human beings. Actually, millions of human beings were already living full and imaginative lives on the continent in fourteen ninety-two, 
That was simply the year in which sea pirates began to cheat and rob and kill them. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, it really is does have that kind of continuity with Twain and, and that kind of uh, uh, a casual attitude towards uh, uh, the his surroundings that allows him to, um, I guess, uh, paradoxically take write more seriously about them. Mm, casual. I would, I would say more sly. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he pretends that he's simply showing you what's there, uh, but it's taking a big leap into a kind of caustic uh, anti-establishment uh, view of life that's uh, really quite jarring. Do you think both Twain and, and Vonnegut, having come out of the Midwest, uh, have a certain imperative to tell the truth about what they see around them, that, say, people who live more easeful, imaginative lives on the East Coast or West Coast didn't, don't uh, feel so compelling to perform? I'm not sure. I, it, that's an interesting point. I never thought about that. But that makes a lot of sense, uh, because the lives that uh, both these men were living were kind of, you know, confined and regulated. I mean, uh, Vonnegut worked a, a, an office job. He was trying to provide for his family well he wasn't <clears throat> living you know the life of a of a artiste right. exactly and i think when you live that kind of life the the inclination to just um spit out what you think is is much more much greater yeah i mean actually it parallels a lot of sherwood anderson if you think about it you know who mm-hmm. anderson was uh managing uh, a paint company in mm-hmm. cleveland until one day he could not take it anymore, and he, he just he had this little writing room at the top in the top floor of his house. He kept locked; his wife and children weren't allowed in it. And one day he went downstairs, went to the railroad tracks, and started walking toward Chicago on the railroad tracks. And he slept at night on the embankment, and he got there about three days later and rented a little room and sat down with a notebook and a pencil and wrote hands, which is the first story in Winesburg, Ohio, in, in really in almost one clean draft. Um, so there's a certain imperative, I guess, that Midwesterners feel, perhaps, that they have to say the truth or, or go mad. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting about Vonnegut is his facility for using, you know, the kind of imaginative metaphors of science fiction. Yes, you, you, I was just about to start uh, talking about that, I mean, he is the one of the few American writers who embraces wholeheartedly the science fiction tradition in a way that, uh, say, Doris Lessing did in England, or mm-hmm. does still in England. Um, he just takes it in as, uh, you know, a, a method and a, and a way of seeing the world that uh, I think a lot of uh, highfalutin, you call them artists, might not cotton to so easily. Well, he's smart enough to know that, hey, it's just another toolkit, and if I want to get something done, mm-hmm. I have to be willing to use whatever tools yes. are at hand. And and Twain was that way, too. Twain wrote a lot of fantasy. I mean, yeah. uh, Connecticut uh, Yankee and That's King true. Arthur's Ford is, is yep. pure, purely Absolutely. fantastic. And, Absolutely. And that's a, that's that you know using these kind of ways to externalize stuff you can't talk about otherwise, and I think that mm-hmm. goes back to what you were saying about them wanting to tell the truth. That you have to tell the truth at any cost, even if you have to use a genre trope to get at it. Which is why I think Slaughterhouse Five is you know 
something resembling his greatest work uh, mm-hmm. because he does use uh, space travel as part of the the, the uh, inventiveness of the book. Um, and you know whether the the Billy Pilgrim, his character, is mad or an actual space traveler is part of the part of the value of the book that we can't really make a definitive statement. I mean, this this is probably, as I read it, the the greatest case of PTSD that's come out of World War II. It's a remarkable book. It's so uh, seemingly offhand, so casual, and at the same time so brilliant. Mm. Well, you said casual. I said sly. Sly. Yes, that's so sly. <laughs> I like sly. I think that's what Vonnegut is, and, and he's kind of... Uh, he's a guy who who smiles at you and seems friendly as a big dog and tells you some funny stories. But about halfway in there, you realize those stories are loaded with needles and barbs, and they are hooked and they go in and they don't come back out quite so easily, do they? The, yes, there's a kind of figure ground effect. Um, I mean, you read them and you think, "Oh, this is just fun," but mm-hmm. then you also you pull yourself back from it and you think, "This is de- a devastating critique of human behavior." And, particularly American life. And, and I think that the, Vonnegut is, I think, superbly a, a great example of an American author. I mean, mm-hmm. he's American through and through. There's no, for all that he's willing to use science fiction and these other tropes, uh, he's very American. He doesn't seem English or British or European. I mean, he, he this is real Americana. Yes, yes. And interesting uh, you can. We were been. You know, we've been comparing him to Twain. But think about the last page of The Great Gatsby. Mm. You know, and uh, beating our boats endlessly back into the past. And think of Vonnegut's motto that he he coins. And so it goes. <laughs> um, the you know, Fitzgerald's looking to the past. Vonnegut's looking to the future. Neither of them is particularly happy about what he sees. Mm. So I, I mean, I think. You know, you, we really can find on rereading this Vonnegut volume that he he may be uh, a major candidate for uh, for great American writer. Oh yeah, and that's why I think one of the the virtues of these uh, American Library uh, volumes is that when you get them, it's nice to see uh, four or five novels put in a in a collection because it makes them seem less daunting. And um, it does give you a chance to reread them in a different setting, not your ratty old paperbacks, but in a nice little hardcover volume. And, the, you know, there's some critiques there, introductions, and it gives you a sense, a means of stepping back from your previous readings mm-hmm. and reengaging with the author on a different level in a different way. And it's really um, – and rereading, I think, is something that we don't talk about very much, and we mm-hmm. don't do very much because there's so much. Really, uh, there's authentically a lot of good stuff coming out. You could just spend all your time. Yeah, I, I, I once did a little piece on rereading for the Chicago Tribune, and they and they got a letter. Uh, the book editor got a letter saying, "Rereading? Oh yes, I do that in between the time that I'm repairing the roof of my house, driving my kids to school, fixing their lunches, and and going to work." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really worth it. I mean, yeah. it's worth it to get out there and reread a book. Uh, and because you find, especially, but that's where people like you come in to help us find the books that are worth rereading, too. 
Well, this one certainly is. Yes, this one certainly is. And we've found, I think, uh, uh, time will probably, I'm suspecting that time will prove that uh, Jim Shepard's will, too. We'll have to wait another 25, 30 years and see what uh, sort of future we have, if people are even reading or if they're just, uh, you know, uploading. Well, they're reading, they're reading. They're just uh, reading on their uh, livre electronique at the, uh, more so than yeah. before. Yeah, and, and hey, uh, as much as I like books for their paper and the smell and all that stuff, um, if people are reading, I'm happy. Yeah, when I see a Kindle advertisement on TV, I think, hey, this means that somebody is buying books. Right. And, <laughs> Even and, if it's downloading, you know, the sale is comprised of downloading. And, and I think, too, I mean, to think that they would be advertising books on TV, uh, an advertisement for a Kindle or even to a, to a degree an iPad mm-hmm. on TV is an advertisement for books and reading. And that's something we haven't seen in on American TV almost ever. Yes. And yes, that's, that's, that's I mean, we have to remember that, you know, this means, uh, you know, lower profits for American writers because uh, cheaper uh, cost of the Kindle means lower royalties for the writer. But... You know, most writers are not going to complain uh, about any sale, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the profit, it's better some profits than no profits. And, yes. and the, uh, you know, the enemy of writers is not uh, the endless duplication and free copies. The, endless, the enemy of writers is not being known. Right. <laughs> That's what we're here to do, to point out to our listeners who is worth their valuable reading time. And in this case, it's Jim Shepard. His new book is You Think That's Bad, and the new uh, collection from the American Library of Kurt Vonnegut. And I've been speaking with Alan Chews. His forthcoming book, or his new book, is A Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, as always. As always. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.